Hey everyone, welcome back to All Protein Weekly. We took a break last week um, because Steve was on holiday and, you know, he's going to be super un-American and be on holiday again next week. So what? two vacations. That is insane. I don't know how you do it. I mean, I heard Americans <laughs> never take holidays. What? Are you becoming what? European? <laughs> oh, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> how was your holiday last week? It was good. It was fantastic. Okay. A good recharge. I'm looking forward to next week also, but we were talking about how uh, we'll see what people eat like when I'm on yes. vacation and, and what are you uh, less than uh positive overall. Uh, <laughs> if, if you ever want to see really what Americans eat like, go to a beach town and with, with piers and rides and a boardwalk and, uh, that's the reality. And things haven't changed there, I don't think, in a hundred plus years, <laughs> except for getting more fried food. Um, but oh, that just shows yeah. we got some we have some progress to make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can imagine. Um, I think we're pretty far from from progress over there. I mean, this is where it's it's gotta be about culture shift as well, you know? Oh, hundred percent. It just be about product change, I think. Um, but it's been pretty quiet over the last couple of weeks, which again, very normal for August. Um, August tends to be even more quiet than Ju than July, but then it really picks up in September. But we have had some some notable announcements. Um, definitely some stuff out of Asia. Our, our big story this week is um, Celex in China, the cultivated meat startup, has announced the opening of their new facility which is, I believe, China's first official cultivated meat facility. So it, it is pretty exciting, especially when you consider that China is going to account for a huge amount of um, meat consumption growth over the next 10 to 15 years. What say you? Yeah, I mean, we, we talked in the past where I try to, I don't want to hype up a, a, a cell a cultivated play too much when it's still nascent, but it is an interesting one to the points that you mentioned. It's, it's the first of its kind really in, in China, the, the, the biggest meat market in the world. Um, and the, the really what's standing out to me here is that it seems like there's some type of government support. I, I don't have the details on what that really is, but they talk about the China five-year plan, which is, um, which which includes a, a some type of government incentive for cultivated meat, um, and and that's just not really what we see in other countries. And when I look at Celex, which I don't know them personally, but when I look at them, they started in 2020, so three years ago, and they're already at this stage. And it just makes me think that this is a good example of the speed at which. Uh, individual companies or even an industry can move when you have some type of government support and it's not all reliant on venture capitalists like myself. So um, that's really what stood out to me. And um, and uh, yeah, and, yeah, and, but, and I, you, you also highlight how there's only a handful of players, right? In, in yeah, China. Yeah. There are less than five cultivated meat companies that are, you know, out of stealth in China. Um, but what is for sure because we chronicle them very closely is that, you know, as you say, they are young, but they are hitting milestones. They are, you know, raising funding rounds. They are debuting products. You've got one of the other companies has done cultivated chicken. 
one of the, another of the companies has done cultivated pork belly. In in terms of government support, I do want to um, say that it, there is um, there is uh, outward support and cultivated meat and alternative protein has been mentioned in the five-year ag food and ag plan by the government. And President Xi has called out the industry in terms of relating it to food security. And there is no doubt that all agri-food experts working on the China market will tell you domestic food security, food sovereignty is, is just high on the list for Beijing. Um, what I think is happening though that is, is worth calling out is in terms of direct support, I wouldn't say it's the government as much as I would say it's big industry. And mm. this is where it's quite similar to what we see in countries like Korea and Japan, where you have, and even to some extent um, in Thailand and in Vietnam and even in Singapore, I mean, if you look at some of the big seafood players like Thai Union and Vinh Huan out of Vietnam, they, they you know, made alliances with companies like Avon Meat and Shiok Meats, cultivated seafood companies. So I think what you see here in Asia is this kind of big industry getting involved. And that's what happened here with Celex, where they partnered with um, food manufacturing specialist Toflons, who are big, big players. Um, in They announced in February that they were going to, you know, build this facility. And so no, I, I think mean, that, that's still really impactful. And I mean, it could potentially be even more impactful if you're working with strategics who know the market they've access to different types of resources and it's more than just capital that's 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 really a, a good win and um, that that i don't think you see as much in the u.s um you're starting to see it in some uh, parts uh, of europe where you know for example um it's uh bell group has invested mm -hmm. in um standing ovation for to make precision fermentation cheeses but usually it's directly impacting their 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 products or their their business lines whereas here what you see is big industry kind of relies on these startups to innovate and then they they do joint ventures um, yeah and i think that's the key there the idea of joint ventures because it's even in the u.s or europe or just wherever you do see some of these strategics making an investment in companies like this but unless they actually provide some type of strategic resource right. in some way then it, it is just it kind of just makes them passive capital on, on on the cap table which is not as impactful so if absolutely and you saw that yeah. with tyson where they got in to beyond meat early on you know made a play for like future protein and then they got out before the ipo and then now it's sort of like their their competitors Right, right. Don't have this kind of like strategic partnership approach at all. Mm -hmm. It would yeah. be better if we did. I mean, that's the ideal is that, you know, startups provide innovation and big, big companies kind of come in and, and see, you know, kind of support it and, and, you know, yeah, make strategic alliances in order to bring that into their business strategy. No, definitely, definitely. And then the only other thing I would bring up on on Celex and cultivated in China is just this idea that you bring up there's only a handful of players. And and then I think you and I have talked about this before where we say like, so what? Does that make them behind in terms of progress? And I would argue, no, it doesn't because maybe there's 130, 150, 60, whatever number of cultivated companies worldwide. 
only a, like a handful in China, but if there's strategic support, government support for just a handful of players in China, maybe those players end up just being bigger, moving faster, and actually having just as much of a an impact as the many smaller players across the world uh, because they have um, better better resources. So I don't really know that it matters in a negative way that there's less companies in China. It may be it may be better for all we know. That's true. I hadn't thought of that. That's super interesting. And and that's such a good point. You know, like how how many companies do you need in, in a new industry for it to really, you know, take off? I suppose yeah. it, it really depends how how far each company goes. But I mean, there are also those who think that, you know, of the dozens of companies in the different all protein sectors, there will eventually just be consolidation and winner takes all. Um, I don't know. I think it's going to be a long time to get there. Like right now, you look at even just conventional meat, like Tyson, Cargill, like JBS, like there's there's a handful of players that kind of dominate the market, but um, they weren't that big to start. They were there weren't only a handful of players to start with. It took a long time of of m and a and and consolidation in the industry before it got there. Absolutely. So well, what else? What else for you stood out? Um, well, in, well, in today, I think the big news today specifically that came out that just made it into this edition was um new culture foods mm. um or new culture, I should say. Uh, a precision fermentation company out of California that, you know, has made headlines um, a few months ago because they debuted uh, casein-based animal-free dairy mozzarella at Mozza, which is Chef Nancy Silverton's very, very popular and, and kind of much-loved pizzeria uh, chain. It's in LA, but I mean, they also have them, I think, in London and other places. And um, I think the the really big news for today for the company is that they have announced that they can now make enough casein to to cover twenty five thousand worth of pizzas. Um, now this is really significant. I think that for those who are not kind of spending their days covering precision fermentation, it might not mean much, but there are only about 30 precision fermentation companies worldwide that are really just working on a protein for dairy. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm sorry, dairy precision fermentation companies. And of those, a handful are working on casein because it, it's just, it's just been the case that casein has been really hard to, um, to scale and to produce compared to whey. Um, so a lot more of the dairy precision fermentation companies work on whey and the products that are in the market, most of which come from Perfect Day, the pioneer in the space are whey based. And so that's why you see a lot of milks, um, you see ice creams, you see cream cheeses, soft cheeses. But if you want to make a stretchy, melty cheese, you really need casein. And it's just it's just been hard for the players to achieve scale here. So if if new culture is is if this is the news this is a this is a milestone for the industry absolutely i i agree it's a, definitely a milestone i also appreciated that that the the reporting that you you guys did at, at green queen you talked to to irena at change foods which is a, a one of the other players in the precision fermentation dairy space focused on on casein amongst other other things 
Um, and there was positive responses from from her and from from Change Foods, where they recognized that at this point, it a, a win for an individual company is a win for the space. Um, with that said, though, I do I do think that I give you guys credit for asking a lot of tough questions, and at the same time, I'm. I don't understand the lack of transparency around the answers to those questions. You ask questions around around yields, around both wet and dry yields, um, around o- overall capacity, around a lot of a lot of different things, price points, and you just got a lot of no comment. And I think that that's fine up to a certain point. Right now, you're really not selling. You're you're not in the market with consumers, but. When it comes time to really get in front of consumers, I'm I'm hoping that New Culture and other companies, any other company, are just very honest about the what's in their product, the inclusion rate of casein versus other ingredients, because like there's already going to be a fear of new new foods to begin with. So if you're not transparent about it, I think it's going to really hinder growth. Couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, we we definitely went back to the company and we had a lot of questions, like data questions, you know, number-based questions. So, you know, how much casein is in the end product mozzarella, you know, per kilo, let's say, and, and what is the yield of their bioreactor? And like, how much casein have they produced today in terms of like total kilos? Just in order to get an idea of where we are compared to, you know, the animal dairy industry and kind of get an idea of like when, when the production levels can start making a meaningful kind of impact. Um, Mm. And it's just very hard to gauge because 25,000 pizzas. Okay. I mean, we can do some back of the envelope calculation, but without knowing how much casein goes onto each pizza, right. Mm. Um, We don't know. Um, we did ask them about ingredients because it's important for folks to know that it's not just going to be casein. And so they, they said they add water, fat, a touch of sugar, and then vitamins and minerals. So again, it's very general as a list. It would be interesting to understand more um, once they, as you said, once they get in front of consumers, I think it's just going to be really, really important for them to be transparent and and this goes for all companies in the space. I think it's one of the critis- criticisms that the space gets where, you know, everyone's kind of holding on to their IP and their and their progress and their ingredients. And I think we would benefit from a lot more of, a, of an open source kind of transparent approach. And you've written about this mm-hmm. on your blog. And it's it's such an important point. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to get someone to put something in their mouth, they should know what it is and feel comfortable with it, right? So um, it, it's as it's as simple as that. And I do think that while some transparency in the traditional food space uh, is is lacking, I think that it's while it's the unfortunate truth for all protein and sustainable food companies that they need to be more transparent. It's that's just how it is. You're trying to get people to eat something new, so you got to be really, really transparent about what what it is, what what what's in it. Um, but yeah, maybe, I, they'll I, do that. Shout, maybe they'll do that. Shout out to like all the journalists out there. Let's ask more questions. I think we need to get the industry used to getting more questions and, you know, giving us more to play with so that we can situate the progress 
in a more kind of benchmarked way, which I, yeah. I sometimes have trouble doing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I mean, on the investor side, like I know I ask the questions that I feel like I need to know when I'm doing diligence on a company. Um, but I don't know that all investors do that, right? Or maybe they leave out some questions because they're super excited about the opportunity and they're just letting things slide. But I don't think we should be letting things slide when it comes to to the food system. Yeah, absolutely. But, but separate from that, on a totally different different topic for 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 what I saw in in this newsletter that was interesting, is um, Notco. So the plant based milk startup Notco has exited the refrigerated milk segment in the U.S. And they're looking to build a presence in the smaller but faster growing shelf stable category. So this stood out to me because on on the surface, you could say, oh, well, maybe they just they see a, an opportunity in shelf stable, right? They say it's faster growing shelf stable category. Um, but uh, under the surface, I really just have some questions for them. I don't really buy the idea that this is just an opportunity. Um, you were even pointing out to me that... Um, you you know that in the in the US, the the refrigerated milk segment is where people buy milk. Yes, there's shelf stable areas on, on and there's shelf stable aisles and things like that. But you go to buy milk, whether it's plant based or dairy based, you go to the refrigerated segment. So, I I, I find it hard to believe that this was just um, being seeing a positive opportunity, and I'm more so wondering if they were struggling uh, to sell out of the refrigerated segment. In, in in u.s retail so i i don't know maybe they maybe it's truly an opportunity and they're they're taking it but i'm skeptical what do you think i think you're right to be skeptical i think they're the more you know there's a generous way to to interpret the news and a not so generous way to interpret the news originally the news didn't stand out so much to me and that is because i live in asia where of course we do have chilled dairy products and dairy milks but i must say that we also have shelf stable dairy and there is no i buy shelf stable oatly for example um i do not buy chilled uh chilled milk so it didn't i didn't immediately make the connection and then i was speaking to um a couple of folks in the industry and you know they pointed out that you know in the us for milk it is the chilled space that is where the competition is happening. And if you're not present there, you're essentially not present. Mm -hmm. And um, the understanding I had is that like, you wouldn't leave the shelf space, the chilled shelf space, unless you were asked to, which means that you weren't performing. So um, I've, I've had mixed reviews about the products, like overall, I've, I've had people on my team try it and, not like it. I've had other people like it. Some people talk about like a pineapple aftertaste. I don't know. I would also say, let's, let's face it. Alt milk is getting very, very crowded. Mm -hmm. um, the category has 15% market share. It's, it, it would be interesting to see how much higher that can go. Um, but to me, this feels like something went, something didn't work out. Yeah, I, I, I agree. That's kind of the, the undertones that I'm getting as well. And, um, and maybe, maybe we're wrong. You never know, but it just yeah, feels, yeah, yeah. It, it feels not great. Um, yeah. And I think interesting to, strategy to kind of announce it rather than quietly just leave. <laughs> yeah. I wonder what the thought process was on that because like, 
if it's not selling really like uh, let's just say let's assume maybe it isn't selling and they were asked to leave that means no one's really paying attention to it anyway right so um i don't know that it would have caused a big a big stir if they just let it slide and then started shifting but um maybe they're trying to the own own the story and own the messaging indeed um well to end on a more positive note i think as we always try to do um one piece of news that i really liked was um we did a piece on the new report by uh the us-based plant-based food association about how restaurants are interacting with um plant-based foods on their menus and it's just really interesting and really good to see that um a vast majority of them are already offer plant-based options in their menus on 62% plan to increase um plant-based menu items and in fact four times i think it was um four times as many food service operators plan to add plant-based meat to their menus than those who say they'll remove it over the next year so mm. um just really like to read that i think it's it's important to talk about this because there's this kind of bigger media narrative around how plant-based isn't working. And a lot of that data is about retail sales. But I think for me, what this data shows is that in a food service capacity, um, plant-based foods to me have now become something that you sort of have to have if you're going to be an inclusive establishment that is offering something to all possible types of customers where before a plant-based option felt like, why do we need that? I think what mm -hmm. really has changed over the last five to 10 years is, is now there, there is a case for it. And restaurants recognize that business case. Yeah, I agree. And I think it is very positive. And it's funny because you and I were talking about this. And I think this is the, the investor side of me where I'm always leaning towards the, the skepticism right? When I read something, I, I say, ah, is that actually true? And for this one, I said, okay, um, it says that there's there's so, there's so much positivity around plant-based food in food service and food service operators, they want to expand the, the plant-based options. And my first thought was, well, what kind of plant-based options? Because plant-based could mean an impossible burger. It could also mean a salad. It could also mean tofu. And I think of those as two very different categories appealing to two very different types of, of customers. And, um, and, and you, you were the one who pointed out that it, it's not just salads, that, that it was, um, operators saying they want to increase by four, four times the amount of plant-based meats that they're, they're introducing in there. So, um, clearly this is not just, um, saying we're, we're adding more salad, which is fine. I, that's, that's a, that's fine with me too, but, um, there really is some type of openness to, to alternative proteins um, because they see the opportunity. So we'll, we'll see how this pans out over time. This will be really impactful if in three, four years from now, those numbers stick and it continues to increase and take more, more share of a menu. Um, but it is a, a little um, positive note in, in a slurry of negative media around plant-based. So food service might be where it's at. Absolutely. Um, and the impact that you get from food service is in many ways far greater than what you're getting in, in retail and some, you know, 
And at the end of the day, more and more people are choosing to turn to food service and 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 have convenient options. And cooking is is just not a growing hobby. So I don't know. I think cultural sh- change and behavioral shift can really a, a big part of that can happen in food service. And you know, I'm I'm very bullish on things like food service operators and things like corporate canteens and school canteens and. Yesterday I was in a meeting with a, a, a food delivery company and we I was we were talking about how do you nudge folks on delivery platforms to choose plant-based um, as a way to kind of lower their emissions. And you know, I think that's where we really need to be focused on. Yeah, that's a, that's such a great point, the the behavioral change side of things. And I do think a lot of that will come also if and when price points come down. Um just whether it's in food service or in retail, but I just, especially in food service where, you know, you're paying up, you're paying a premium for food that's being prepared for you and, and, and served to you. So if you look at a menu and most things are 20 bucks and then the plant-based option is 17, it'll stand out to some people, not everyone, but that might be enough to nudge even more people in in the plant-based direction. Let's hope. (laughs) <laughs> sounds Let's like hope. sounds like family barbecues are gonna take a while <laughs> yeah family barbecues boardwalk <laughs> nights and everything but uh... that's not gonna be for a while so we need to find <laughs> other ways <laughs> all right well folks steve is off next week as i said just like lazing around like a european what am i even thing. doing am i even working <laughs> so we will be back in two weeks and i'm sure the headlines will have picked up by then so Ever see, we'll see y'all then. See you then.